The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders Teach, our season two of our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya, and we also have a special student host, Andrew Delat. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss ways to improve your morning report with Dr. Tony Brew and Dr. Ryan Bonner. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation tonight with our guests, Drs. Brew and Bonner. We cover morning report history, the mechanics involved, really best practices on facilitating and engaging a report. It makes me just want to go and do it right away, you know, tonight at 7 p.m. to start a morning report. <laughs> so I'm really pumped about this. And we are really excited to have Andrew Delat on air with us. He's been an amazing volunteer on season one and helping us out with season two behind the scenes. And he helped us write this script and we're happy to have him on air. Andrew, could you introduce yourself on the one-liner? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm a fourth year medical student from Akron, Ohio. I'm interested in primary care medicine and in my free time, I enjoy golfing with my brother and spending time with my two nephews. Welcome, Andrew. We have two amazing guests tonight. To start off with, Dr. Anthony Brew, or Tony Brew, is the Director of Resident Education at the VA Boston Healthcare System and is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Since taking his job at the VA Boston in 2013, he has attended over a thousand morning reports. This remains his favorite hour of the day. Now on to our other guest, Dr. Ryan Bonner, who is a soon-to-be nephrology fellow, excited about all things internal medicine, physiology, and medical education, when he's not at the whiteboard talking about the kidneys, you can find him showing people cute pictures of his baby. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, Dr. Bonner and Dr. Brew, thank you so much for joining us. Are you okay with us calling you Ryan and Tony for this recording? Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Well, we would like to start off by just asking some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we'll start with you, Ryan. Could you give us a one liner to describe yourself? Uh, absolutely. So I am a 30 year old, uh, newly former chief resident. I'm an incoming nephrology fellow. And most importantly, along with my wife, I am the co wrangler of a uh, very large and very mobile 10 uh, month old boy. I love that. Tony, what about you? What's a one liner for you? Yeah, so I um, I'm gonna go with middle aged. I'm a middle aged uh, hospitalist, former chief resident, and I am also the uh, husband and uh, father of unfortunately two people with COVID right now, right down the hall, and one person who is in bed with the two people who have COVID, so who is actively acquiring COVID as we speak. So, but they're doing fine. It has been going around, <laughs> <laughs> apparently. Yeah, it, it flew through our house last month. Yeah, I was just in Virginia with two family members with COVID and you just kind of wait and just see, is it going to happen? Is it? Am I actually watching it being acquired uh, or is there some magical immunity that's happening? Who even knows? So sending you all healthy vibes. 
Much appreciated. I mean, it, I don't know if the, anyone who's ever heard my voice um, over a podcast before, this is not my normal voice. The PCR and antigen tests all tell me this is not a COVID voice, but I actually don't believe them. I think I have COVID and the tests are all negative. We're not talking about test characteristics on this episode. Tony, I thought I this was believe. your sultry podcast voice. <laughs> God, I only wish. That would be great. That's awesome. Well, uh, to get to know you all even more, just wondering if you could both share um, a book, movie, show, or even album that you've recently uh, appreciated, enjoyed, and maybe Tony will start with you. Um, I recently listened to the unabridged version of The Count of Monte Cristo. I had read the abridged version in high school, and I remember loving it. I think a lot of high school kids read it. I had never read the unabridged version, which is 1,200 pages and over 50 hours if you listen to it. Totally worth it, even at over 50 hours. You know, one of our guests recently recommended it, and so I am actually listening. And it's still only one credit on Audible. I am actually (laughs) listening to it right now. Yeah, I think I'm like four hours into those 50 hours. So, (laughs) And how about you, Ryan? Do you have a recommendation? Uh, yes, uh, it is less, it's less of a powerful, uh, piece of literature, but, um, uh, for those who are, uh, fans of parks and recreation, there's a rewatch podcast that's being done right now with Rob Lowe, who acted on the show. And then Alan Yang who's one of the producers where they sort of go behind the scenes, tell stories from, uh, from their time on set and things like that. So for folks who are, who are into that more, uh, who are into that, that sort of thing, um, rewatch podcasts, et cetera, it's, um, it's, it's been fun so far. I love that. I also have a kindred spirit in Leslie Nope, so I feel like there's something there's something more. I want to hear more stories about her, about Absolutely. the character development. Yeah, they're mid, in the middle of season two right now, so uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of a lot of good content. I'm not they're not at 50 hours yet, but they'll get there. <laughs> I think we're only at 14. <laughs> Do you have some uh, meaningful advice or feedback that you've gotten over the years um, that you like to pass on, or that has really shaped your your career? I, I can I can start. I think um, for, there's a there's a book by Annie Duke called uh, who's a, a cognitive psychologist. Uh, she studies decision making. She's a former poker player, and she talks a lot about this idea of avoiding this this concept of resulting, which is judging the success of a decision based on uh, the outcome, making sure we're not doing that, and making sure we're sort of evaluating uh, evaluating decisions based on the information that was had at the time the decision was being made. And I think there's a lot of applicability to that in uh, in medicine. So. Um, really making sure that when you think about the decisions you made, when you're evaluating those and looking back, um, try to step back into the shoes you were in at that point rather than judging the decision based on the outcome itself. I like that. 2020 hindsight definitely gives you a different perspective. What about you, Tony? When I was uh, in Ryan's position now, sort of end of year or end of chief year, uh, I was looking for a first job and I was told, um, go someplace else because I was strongly considering staying where I had done my residency. I ultimately did not take that advice. I took a job where I had done my residency and and was happy with the position. When I did actually go someplace else a couple years later, I realized that that advice was great because seeing the way other hospital systems work is just so eye-opening. And I think people who work in the same place for their entire career, there's a lot of virtue in that. But it does create a sense of there's only one way of doing things. And that's clearly not the case. There's also something to be said about just hearing how other people perceive you. Like you have a, you know, kind of a institution or a localized reputation or maybe a localized kind of awareness of how things are. And when you are on the job market looking for other places, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't think about framing my work in this way or framing my kind of interests in this way. And sometimes I find that really 
really exciting and really interesting to have that kind of introspection that happens after talking to a different institution or just seeing kind of what your life might look like somewhere else. You're, you're not leaving us, are you? No, 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 no. <laughs> so spoiler alert, I'm going to wherever Ryan and Tony are. Just kidding. Well, no, we ain't in the same place anymore. What's that? <laughs> As of last Friday, he uh, he's in a different place now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. True. Yes, that's true. That's true. All right. So do you guys have some picks of the week? Ira, do you want to start us off? Yes, Molly, I do. My pick of the week is Sneakerella, and it is a Disney Plus original. Uh, It's a modern remake of the Disney classic Cinderella, but it is gender swapped. So there's this kid, Elle, who's a stock boy in a shoe store in Queens by day, but then he's a sneaker designer by night. And of course, he falls for the daughter of a basketball star and sneaker tycoon, Kira. And I will tell you, I'm not usually a fan of musicals, but this one kept me hooked because of its dancing, hip hop, opera style, and really scenes that are just like mostly sung through they have a loyal best friend a quirky fairy godfather and really an out-of-touch stepfather but all these things have such catchy moments um they even have a scene of l being a shoe psychic which just totally rocked my world so definitely a family film to check out on disney plus sneakerella I know, Molly, you're plus minus on it, but or maybe your family. I haven't seen it yet, so (laughs) just saying, check it out. (laughs) Lots Uh, of singing. In the vein of uh, joyful TV, I will recommend uh, Working Moms, which is a comedy about this group of friends who are moms and have careers and just kind of trying to juggle things and frequently getting things wrong and just like failing at one thing at a time, which feels like my life. So uh, it's just a fun show to watch and feels very relatable as a working mom. And Andrew? Um, mine is the, uh, the app forest. So if you're anything like me where you get sucked into being on med Twitter all day, um, it's a app that you can, uh, essentially build a forest. And for every hour that you spend off your phone, it builds a tree. Um, and it's a great motivator. Um, and I think after you build so many trees, they actually donate, uh, to actually build a real tree, uh, which is wonderful. So you help out the environment, you stay focused, um, and it's free. And to build a tree, what is... What does that involve? <laughs> uh, it, it basically, like, if you if you spend the whole hour off of your phone and on the app, it slowly builds the tree. And then on the app, you have this, like, little forest. And so the more time you spend off your phone, the larger your forest grows. But with the app open? Uh, I guess, yeah, technically. <laughs> oh, interesting. It's confusing, but I it like how wholesome it is. <laughs> I love it. You're, like, carbon uh, decreasing your carbon footprint one app at a time. Well, in the interest of time, uh, let's jump into the case here. Um, so we have uh, Marsha. She's our new chief resident at Cashlock Memorial, and she's responsible for coordinating morning report. She started to notice that during the morning reports, many residents are more focused on using the time to sign out patients and review charts. When she inquired with the residents on their feedback around morning report presentations, several residents explained that they felt the reports aren't that practical or high yield. Marsha's motivated to improve Morning Report at Cashlack. Uh, to begin with, Morning Report is an old tradition. Tony, could you talk us through how it began and what an ideal Morning Report can deliver for learners and teachers? It, it's, a, it's a good question because the reality is that Morning Report has changed a lot since its inception. Um, so I think many listeners, but maybe not all listeners, um, know that it's been around for decades, probably a century you know, the original conception uh, of Morning Report was an opportunity for the chief of medicine, the chief resident, to keep tabs on the medical service. Because at public hospitals, there were no t- no attendings. The patients were cared for by house staff. 
They reported to chief residents, and ultimately the chief of medicine was responsible for the care of those patients. And so morning report was the opportunity to basically report out on what was going on and to have the chief resident and the chief of service sort of offer guidance and then they would go on and do their thing. And so, you know, even up into the 1970s and 1980s, the average number of cases presenting at Motor Report was around five or six and sometimes up to 30. Very different than what we see now where it's typically one or two cases. And so if you think about historically, that the one of the main goals was to just keep tabs on like what's going on in the hospital with a secondary goal of um, provide an educational experience for the trainees you know, now in 2022, I think the main goal is as a teaching conference. And we could talk more about the myriad goals that one can try to achieve. But the, I think the key point for the listeners is there is not a singular goal with Morning Report. It really varies day to day, case to case, uh, presenter to presenter. And we can talk maybe again a little bit more about what those goals might be, but it isn't just like knowledge dissemination. Right. It, it has to be more than that. That's interesting. So it sounds like it used to be kind of like workarounds and now it's more case presentations. Yeah. In a way, that's exactly right. I also think that history is super important to realize the, the balance between service or kind of oversight and education, because I think it makes us realize also how far medicine has come. Because I think sometimes we often think about we're such slow movers in medicine and evolution, but here's an example where really the focus on education and development and kind of, uh, you know, thinking about the reasoning going on in the management of the patient is really important. Um, I wonder, is there... Um, in your mind, Tony, just to follow up kind of a ideal morning report delivery system, like do you find uh, that there's a perfect way or an optimal way to um, run morning report? No, but I, I will say that if you don't keep morning report, and it doesn't have to be in the morning, many are at noon or in the afternoon, if you don't keep it as a case-based conference, I don't think you're meeting learners, whether it's uh, house staff, um, you know, residents or medical students, I don't think you're meeting them at with what they're expecting. I think they're expecting a case-based conference. But how that's delivered with prepared slides, with a whiteboard, uh, with a, um, a fresh case versus a, a case that um, was maybe prepped a bit ahead of time, there's values in each of those approaches, as we may talk about. And I don't think a singular approach is necessarily superior to another. Totally. And maybe Ryan, you can tell us kind of what's your favorite approach of maybe the ones that Tony listed or, or a different uh, different approach altogether, like a case that's just fresh overnight or something that's already been written up by one of the residents. What do you, what do you prefer? Yeah. And I, I think the, the crux here, because the, the presentation style, if you use PowerPoint, if you use whiteboard, if you use a combination of both, I think what the crux of the uh, of that question really is scripted versus unscripted, right? So scripted reports are those where the case or the facilitator, the presenter chooses a case ahead of time, has a sense ahead of time of how they want to structure the presentation, how they want to focus on specific learning objectives, etc. Unscripted cases are those in which right, the presenter doesn't necessarily know the case ahead of time. And the case comes from the audience or a separate facilitator, and, and these tend to be more focused uh, on clinical reasoning, walking through the case sort of as a group with the audience and the presenter more or less uh, on the same team, on the same page, etc. So I personally myself prefer scripted reports, and and part of that is, in, and again, like, like Tony had mentioned, there's a huge amount of value in both, um, and a lot of it depends on what your learning objectives uh, will be. But when it comes down to it, 
I personally find I'm more able to be intentional about my learning points when I have the chance to prepare, when I have that opportunity. Um, and that's just not, that's not the case for everyone. But I will say, you know, I'm fairly fresh out of training, right? So unless an unscripted case falls within a fairly narrow wheelhouse of, of things that I'm, that I'm familiar with, able to teach on sort of on a whim, I might have, have a hard time effectively teaching that material. So for me, that's why I lean more towards scripted, but I love attending unscripted ones as well. I, I sort of, I love it all. If you give Ryan a magnesium of less than one unscripted, he's it's a home run. That's right. It's, <laughs> it's a, a magnesium. A true nephrologist. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a home run for me. The residents get to sleep more because of how I present the information. It's it's uh, it's really a fantastic opportunity. <laughs> and how do we think about choosing a good case for a morning report? Tony, I've, I've heard from some residents and students that they're kind of wishing morning report was more practical, maybe less diagnostic reasoning and more kind of management reasoning or getting stuff done. Um, have you had success kind of shifting the culture to meet both of those needs of covering interesting diagnosis, but also helping learners kind of really uh, learn the skills that they need to be able to practice medicine? I, I hope so. I mean, I'll say that in a, in a typical year, if you have four or five morning reports a week, there are over 200 conferences in an academic year. And obviously, residents don't go to everyone. So uh, any program that's doing 100% of those as diagnostic reasoning and differential diagnosis and not doing at least some portion of them on management are uh, really not, as you're alluding to, Molly, not really meeting the residents where they're at. And frankly, not meeting the program's needs, right? People need to know about the management as well. That, that balance is hard to know. Um, and uh, you know, I've encouraged chief residents at times to actually look at look for opportunities to, to make, in some ways, two-day morning reports, where day one is diagnostic reasoning. Got a patient with uh, abdominal pain and pancreatitis. Let's think through what this could be. Ultimate diagnosis is hypertriglyceride uh, uh, associated with pancreatitis. And then day two, we talk about the management of pancreatitis more generally, and then the esoterica of the treatment of triglyceride-mediated uh, pancreatitis. So there are, there are ways to, to do that even within a singular case, but you have to be thoughtful and you have to sometimes look under the hood and see what have we done over the last month? What have we done over the last three months? Has it been exclusively cardiology cases? Has it been exclusively cases of diagnostic reasoning? I'll make one other brief comment because um, this might be the best time for it. And it's this question of zebras versus horses if we are doing diagnostic reasoning cases. And I, I've had a change of heart on this. I used to think that we shouldn't really avoid uncommon cases and, and only present common diseases. And the reason I've had a change of heart on this is I've come to the realization that if a chief resident says to me, hey, Tony, I'm thinking about doing a case of PNH. The reality is that you come to the realization that they are not actually doing a case of PNH. They're doing a case of hemolytic anemia that ultimately turns out to be PNH. Hemolytic anemia is a perfect morning report topic. Every internist needs to be facile with it. And if ultimately in the final five minutes, it's revealed that the diagnosis is PNH and they learn something about it, that's great. But that's, and by the way, that's kind of like the big reveal and everyone like gets to like, oh my gosh, PNH, wow. But that is not the focus of the conference. Ultimately, the focus of the conference is the, the main bread and butter. And that, that used to be not the way I looked at morning report. I thought you had to do only community acquired pneumonias. I, I actually, I really like the horses versus zebra sort of discussion because really there's nothing inherent about a case that makes it good or bad for morning report. And 
there's always folks who come by the chief resident's office at institutions sort of all over the place that say, oh, I have a really great case for for morning report. And it's something that, you know, you've never seen or never heard of. Uh, that doesn't necessarily, those aren't necessarily better cases than like, you know, Tony had said, the community acquired pneumonias. It's all about what you draw from it. You know, to Tony's point, if you spend the entirety of that case talking about how to treat PNH, right, that maybe is not as practical. But really, you know, the most intricate, complex case I've ever seen or encountered in the clinical setting, I've tried to present a bunch of times in a bunch of settings, and it's really not gone well each time. Whereas the case of recurrent cellulitis I've seen, that one goes just fine, right? It's, it's, it's 100% dependent on what you sort of pick and choose out of the case itself. I think there's also something really fun and really special about kind of presenting a case that has to do with maybe the diagnosis part of it, where you're kind of saying, I wonder what this person uh, with kind of two of not their own organs and abdominal pain has. And then in the end, you're like, oh, it's actually GERD. You know, I always thought about like having that. I remember my co-chiefs and I would joke, like, when is the day that we will present a patient with GERD? And uh, we, we never did, but there's something about this kind of diagnosis journey that you take with someone where it's just entertaining kind of the things like PNH, the kind of more esoteric cases, but really it's, you're working through a diagnosis of abdominal pain and, and, or I should say a symptom of abdominal pain. And I wonder, kind of Molly brought up the question of, you know, the resident feedback of saying, I want my report to be more practical. And in addition to that type of kind of response, there are many other challenges that I think residents and uh, learners uh, have noted about morning report. And I wonder if both of you kind of can highlight um, maybe, maybe some other common issues, you know, the reports are slow to start, or it took too long to get to the punchline that um, we were trying to get to and kind of how we can counteract some of these challenges. And maybe, uh, Ryan, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's um, there's a lot of uh, mistakes I've made giving morning reports. And um, I think there's there's because it's such a it's such a complex thing to be doing. Of, of course, there are there are plenty of pitfalls, as you mentioned. I think some of the things that uh, that have come up, I think morning report is a great place to introduce principles of evidence-based medicine and help folks use evidence uh, in, you know, to improve the patient care that they're providing. I think when it comes to those situations, right, thinking about things like likelihood ratios, odds ratios, number needed to treat, whatever it is, presenting those without meaning can be really challenging because people, you know, it's in the morning or it's at lunchtime. Um, people are getting a whole bunch of numbers thrown at them. And what your, what your role is as the presenter, as the facilitator is to say, not this likelihood ratio is this specific number, but more importantly, this test is a great test. This test is an okay test. This test is not useful, right? So that's, that's one thing that, uh, that I've, um, that I've run into myself and, and sort of changed with my own practice. Um, and the other thing before I sort of throw it over to Tony is, really thinking, one, one mistake is really thinking that you're the only teacher in the room, right? Your role there is to facilitate and, and have a great discussion, but you could easily be presenting a topic that, you know, someone has, uh, you know, one of the interns that you're presenting to has done their PhD in that topic. You, uh, you know, you might have other um, faculty facilitators in the room, um, or it might be on, you know, a case that you've never seen anything about. And one of the, you know, one of the M3s, M4s, interns, residents, whoever it is, has actually seen that and is able to elaborate a little bit more. So remembering that the goal is to have a great discussion as a group, not necessarily have you present all the information that you know about something. Tony, do you want to jump in and share a few thoughts about this in terms of challenges or common issues that pop up? Yeah, I think from the perspective of the presenting person, whether that's a chief resident, a resident faculty member, the two most common issues I see, particularly early in the year, uh, although it can be at any time, are 
A, being too ambitious with how much you want to cover. I'll often tell chief residents, all right, prepare what you want to do and then cut it in half. It is much better to prepare too little and either end early. No one's going to complain if you end early or have time for questions. So prepare and then cut it in half. Um, and then the other mistake I, I, I'll often see made is um, what I call group history taking, where the chief resident says, hey, we've got a 67-year-old man presenting with shortness of breath. What do you want to know? History taking is a medical student level task, and that's not to sort of demean medical students. It, it's to mean that interns and residents are well-equipped at taking a history. We need to push them to actually start to reason in morning report and to spend 15 minutes asking a review of systems is not a good use of that time. They know how to take a history. And so you're just accelerating. Give the history up front, right? Maybe leave out a couple things so that you can say, all right, are there any questions you have? And all right, now they have to ask, are they waking up at night with a diarrhea, right? You've withheld that because you really want to make sure that they've identified that as a key question. But if, if you're given a one-liner and then taking 15 minutes of any fevers or chills, any weight loss, I think it frustrates the audience and it's it's not a good use of the time. Those are great tips. Thank you. And and I think you gave us that same feedback of we were being overly ambitious for this episode. So <laughs> please, well taken. Uh, but well, I, I didn't also- say to cut it in half though. No, no. <laughs> Um, Ryan, you had kind of mentioned, um, that, you know, as the facilitator, you, you don't necessarily, you know, that, that your role as a facilitator is to encourage a good discussion. Um, how do you see that playing out? Like, how is your time management during, during morning report? Yeah, I think that that's, that's really challenging and something that a lot of times based on the report is, can be uh, can be easier said than done. I think understanding that, as, as Tony had mentioned, you're going to get more benefit from having more time spent on fewer learning objectives. I, I think, you know, for a 45 minute morning report, which is what ours were, you know, two or three learning objectives is going to be is going to be plenty. Um, and understanding that as you introduce those, as you work through activities or teaching points or what have you, you really are going to spend the vast majority of time on things outside of what is under your control, right? A lot of what is under your control is the how fast you write on the board or how fast you click the clicker on the PowerPoint or whatever it is, um, or how fast you're making your teaching points. Whereas a lot of what is going to take time is is how you generate and work through that discussion, which unfortunately is not under your control. But uh, you really, if you, you know, have a sense that you're Morning report is in sort of three, uh, you know, we, we've talked about it before, Tony, but three arcs, right? Or three stories, uh, three storylines throughout the case, right? The initial diagnosis, you know, a complication, and then the treatment or what have you. I think um, keeping in mind that there are three arcs to the case or three parts to this story really keeps you moving in the right direction as opposed to thinking of it as sort of one global activity. You know, piece it, you know, uh, split it in part, apart into different pieces to, to keep yourself sort of moving forward, if that makes sense. And do you like to include discussants from other services or other uh, professions? I think there's I think there's a lot of uh, benefit from that. Um, I think the key part of that, especially when it comes to time management, is making sure that uh, you give them specific instructions about where and when and how you want their um, how you want their involvement to to look. Because you don't want you know the expert oncologist giving away the answer in the first five minutes, right? Um, so uh, that's definitely something that I've seen done that I've seen a lot of a lot of benefit from, as long as it's done in a really specific manner that leverages that person's expertise 
at the right time rather than too early or too late because you want to have that person have the opportunity to give their thoughts, provide their expertise, and then also field questions. That's one of those situations where you're not the only teacher in the room, as I had mentioned before. And Tony, speaking about kind of the facilitator not being the only teacher in the room and trying to get really the discussion going, do you have any tips for asking good questions as the facilitator, whoever it may be, um, kind of individually calling on certain learners to share or maybe asking a group of students or a group of uh, residents to kind of tell them or tell you how they're thinking about this patient with a fever? I'm going to offer my opinion, and I know that not everyone agrees with this opinion. And I, and I think that there are um, there's a reasonable debate that can be had, but I am a believer in cold calling and to you know define that basically saying Molly question, uh, maybe not as intensely. Um, but the reality is if you're going to use that technique, you have to use it in a safe way. And that usually comes down to the type of question you ask. So it is not fair to say, Molly, what molecule is abnormal in PNH that leads to hemolysis? Right, that's just not going to work. But I could say, Molly, what are you thinking right now? Right, and, and by the way, hopefully the answer relates to the case. I mean, she could be thinking about something else, but usually the answer will relate to the case. That question, if you if if a facilitator, it's a chief resident or someone else, has that question always in their back pocket. You know, Ryan, what are you thinking right now? There's no right or wrong answer, and it's a question that any learner can provide something in response to. So questions that are open-ended and don't have an answer, I think, are are good ways to draw out, you know, people, not necessarily the the people who uh, who are less inclined to say something, but just try to get more people in the room. And then the other way to sort of take advantage of this is to to make use of pair share. I think all of us are are familiar with pair share. If you create a culture in your morning ports where it's used often, it doesn't become oh god, really. Uh, which I think for some people it is. And if it's used intentionally, you know, okay, I'm going to have you guys go out into groups. When we come back, I'm going to you know call on you and hear what you had to say. Those pairs are opportunities to vet your ideas. And, you know, if something is totally ridiculous, it's probably going to be clear in your conversations. And And the reality is, if two people don't think it's ridiculous, then it's worth mentioning to the larger group. And I think saying, hey, Ryan, can you talk a little bit about what you know, you and you and Jack were thinking about uh, when you talked. I think that's also a reasonable cold call. But if you are going to ask, "Hey, does anyone know the pathophysiology of PNH?" That's got to be an, uh, a question to the group or to the faculty member. Hey, Doctor Brew, like, what the heck's going on with PNH? And I'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> I love that because I feel like that it gives a chance for people also to um, decrease the kind of psychological stress that might be happening. I find that there, another way to do that is by saying like, oh, Ira, I'm going to ask you a question about the kind of diagnosis or the diagnostic test that you might uh, want to be thinking about. But first, you know, you can pair share with Molly or something like that. That kind of, it gives you that time to be like, oh my gosh, Tony's asking me a question, but then you're kind of calming down because you're realizing, oh, it's part of a pair share. Or I even have the time to think about what I'm even going to say when, you know, Tony is using my name or something like that. People are kind of giving you a chance to really um, decrease the psycho- psychological size in the room. I think that's a, that's a, a brilliant technique. So um, if you're doing, let's say, a classic Alquat-based clinical reasoning case, saying, Eric, I'm going to show the physical exam next, and then I want you to comment on it. Telling them beforehand that they are the person who's going to comment, now they're like, okay, 
in the zone. I'm actually paying attention. Um, it, but it's still a question, you know, what are you thinking? Not, so the jugular venous pressure is 12. Is that normal or abnormal? Right. That you can't ask that question to an individual person because it's a trap. Either get it right and it's like, okay, well, no kidding. Everyone knows the answer to that. Or they get it wrong and you've really made them look foolish. And regardless, you probably created a hypertensive urgency situation for that person. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think the other the other piece of that is just making sure that you're scaffolding questions appropriately, right? If you are gonna cold call, right, you can ask you can ask the M three or M four, whoever it is, you know, have you ever seen PNH or have you ever seen hemolytic anemia and have them sort of talk through what their perspective is. Uh, as opposed to a senior resident, who you may be able to be a little bit more pointed and say, you know, tell me, a, you know, walk me, you know, walk me through, you know, the labs that are associated with hemolytic anemia or, or something like that, right? And making sure that um, you're not uh, you're not being too aggressive about your about your questioning, um, depending on the level of the of the learner. And the scaffolding can happen with a singular question. You can say, all right, Molly, I'm gonna, you're, let's say Molly is an intern. Molly, I'm going to have you um, um, talk about what you're thinking. And then Ryan, let's say Ryan is a PGY3. And then Ryan, I'm going to have you sort of follow up on that. Now Ryan can just be like, well, what Molly said was brilliant. But now let me sort of wax poetic you know, beyond that. It really puts the more senior learners in a position that they can be an additional teacher and not just a learner. Those are really nice approaches to, to helping to get people engaged and get people communicating. Ryan, how should the chief resident manage a potential diagnosis or management plan that's offered up that maybe is off target or inappropriate? Yeah, I think I think there's different degrees of, of off target, right? Um, so, uh, right, one, there's feasibly a situation in which you're just not familiar with the information being provided. You don't actually know if it's correct or incorrect. And that's a situation where there's a little bit more digging that needs to get done. Because again, this person might know more about you than about this particular diagnosis or treatment or what have you. Um, so in that case, you know, ask someone in the audience to look it up and and circle back to it later. That's something that um, that sort of that adds to that sense of of group learning, which I think is really valuable in morning report. Um, in some situations, people will be partially right, and you should tell them in what situation their answer is correct. Right? That happens a lot of times with when you think about antibiotic choice. Right? There's empiric antibiotic coverage for community-acquired pneumonia for a normal host. And if someone might say, okay, I'd rather give these antibiotics, that might actually work more spe specifically for someone with chronic lung disease or what have you, right? And in that situation, you can say, you know, I wouldn't give that antibiotic to this person, but I would give it to this person. And that, that sort of helps set the tone that you're looking for a way to make sure people are sort of wrapped up in the case. Um, and if, if there's something that's you know, definitively wrong, asking about the, the learner's thought process in that situation can be really helpful. Um, they might sort of reason out that themselves that they that they might be on the wrong track. And you can at least you can at least get a sense of 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 their of their level of learning and see what sort of correction might need to be made based on their own thought process. I think overall, most importantly, you know, you're there to teach the right stuff. So if someone provides an answer that is incorrect, it's important to um, to make a correction if needed and maybe not include it on your schema or in your management script or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, you want to make sure the right information is up on the board. Yeah. I mean, I, I so often see facilitators, again, most often chief residents, just so happy that someone participated that, you know, whatever the answer, they're like, oh my God, that was great. And the reality is, it was great that they participated, but sometimes what they offer is incorrect. So, you know, even recently, you know, they were doing, the chief resident was doing a case of TTP and one of the junior learners 
made a statement about how um, you know the yeah the playlist count is low because uh, of underproduction. And the chief resident was like, "Great, that's great, thank you." And you know, so we talked afterwards during our feedback about how do we navigate an answer that's incorrect because we want to make sure that the other people who hear it don't learn something that's not true. But we have to do it in a way that is um, uh, careful and uh, conscientious of that person's ego is not the right word. Just it is hard to be told in a large group that was something that you said was was wrong. And so one of the techniques that we talked about during this feedback was saying something along the lines of, you know, I, I continue to get confused about this, uh, you know, destruction versus production. Turns out this actually is a case where it's a destruction problem. Acknowledging that this is hard while then correcting it, does that totally mitigate the the learner's sense of oh my god I I said something wrong probably not but there are simple ways to do it that uh, I think can can try to sort of dull that that sharpness at least a little bit I'm not sure if the two of you have have seen techniques that are great I mean you've been at, um, at you know, hundreds of morning ports as well. Well, I think not to hammer home the decreasing of psychological size, but I think exactly what you just said, Tony, really resonates with kind of what we're taught to do to kind of say, yeah, I have also often thought that, you know, insert kind of clinical context, kind of like Ryan, you were saying, you know, I have also considered that, again, antibiotics should be used in uncomplicated diverticulitis every single time. And recently, I have learned that, and you kind of highlight the fact that you are a human being and that you um, make kind of similar kind of maybe shortcuts or have cognitive heuristics that need to be addressed as well. Um, But you're also doing it in a way that shares that, you know, we're all human and we're all kind of there to learn together. So I've seen I've seen folks do that a lot. And then, Ryan, I love what you said about kind of asking the learner to share what their uh, kind of thought process was, because one of our guests in our first season, uh, Gupreet Daliwal, really talks about showing the work and kind of having learners really clarify um, where they're coming from. And I would gauge probably the relationship or the kind of sense of connection between you and that learner to say, well, can you, you know, Ryan, walk me through how you were thinking about the platelet count or how you were thinking about that ABG analysis or whatever it is to just have them share their thoughts and see if they can kind of make that, make those corrections in real time. I think it's a great point asking those follow-up questions. I mean, we've all been in um, morning reports where someone says, well, has the patient been to Tibet? And um, you'll have some chief residents who are like, no, any other questions? It's like, oh, no, I, I want to know why are you why? asking about Tibet, <laughs> right? And and sometimes it can become a little bit tiresome. Like every single question is, well, why do you ask that? Well, why do you ask that? But the reality is that if you do it enough, the residents get used to that and they know to say, have they ever been to Tibet? And I asked that question because it doesn't always work that way. But you do, as Kapreet said, you, those follow-up questions are really where the reasoning is demonstrated. It also keeps people kind of hooked because they're like, oh my gosh, I want to know why that person asked if they have diarrhea at 3 a.m. as opposed to 7 a.m. You know, like you kind of want to get that extra piece of information. And, you know, speaking about attention spans, I think we've all seen that sometimes they can wane occasionally in reports. And Tony, I just wonder how you think about kind of continually engaging learners and to stay kind of uh, present in report, um, as opposed to maybe kind of thinking about patients that they that they are about to see or um, things that might need to get done. 
Yeah, this is important. And um, I'm going to offer one response, which is not helpful, but it's that uh, if you put together a good uh, morning report, people will remain interested. And so, you know, if we talk um, this evening about feedback, this is where feedback becomes essential because without feedback, the conferences cannot remain high quality. There are a few other things. Ryan alluded earlier to this idea of having a few different arcs and whether it's, uh, we do 45 minute morning reports, some are 30 minutes, some are 60 minutes. It's rare to find a 90 minute report now. Thinking about, okay, 10 to 15 minutes and then I'm transitioning to the next piece and not getting stuck in the mud for too long a period of time, I think is valuable. And again, sometimes there's a role for pair share or slightly larger groups. You know, if you do that two or three times over the course of a 45-minute morning report, it ensures, frankly, that um, people continue to to be engaged because it's hard to turn to your neighbor and just stare at them for 90 seconds. I mean, it's been done. I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've done that, but it's harder to do than to just stare into the distance for 45 minutes when you're never asked to talk to your neighbor. So there are, you know, Ryan's I'm sure got other tips, but those are probably the key ones that, that I'd offer. Yeah. I think, uh, making sure that you're always, always going back to the case, right? Some, some activities can be really prolonged and, um, those can have inherent value. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that. I do think though, that you have to make sure that you're always coming back to the case that you're working through, um, because a lot of folks are there for that sort of diagnostic or that management reasoning piece, that mystery piece. So making sure they're always coming back to that case keeps people involved in that story. Um, and I would also just, it's its very simple, but um, try not to give away the diagnosis too early, you know, uh, say that, uh, you know, give the give the hemolysis, uh, hemolysis labs and then uh, have people reason out that it's PNH versus saying it's PNH, tell me, you know, you know, let's walk through hemolysis together, right? That's sort of a different. That's sort of a different style. And I'll, I'll be honest: the using PNH as an example case, we are very much getting towards the limit of my understanding of that disease to be able to keep using it and returning to it as an example. Um, so I did want to share that. I, I think it might be valuable to talk about a, um, a similar version of your question, which is: what do we do about the the resident who doesn't come to morning report? I mean, I can, it's funny. I can remember Shani Herzig, one of my friends and mentors. She said to me when I was a, a PGY3, soon after I was asked to be chief resident, she's like, you're not coming to morning report. You need to come. And it wasn't because I had been asked to be chief resident. It was because, you know, I need to come. It's an opportunity to not do clinical care all day long, which is exhausting. And it's an opportunity to connect with others, all these myriad things. But there's a differential diagnosis for the resident who isn't coming. And I think sometimes we don't think about what, what that might be. Where Ryan and I work, sometimes it's at the culture at their home institution because we're a VA and we have three residency programs who send residents. Sometimes it's at, the, at their institution, patients on inpatient or residents on inpatient teams don't go to motor report. And so they're just like, well, that's the way we do it at VA too. And it turns out that's not the case. Sometimes it's that they're overwhelmed. Sometimes it's that they're coming in late because they have child care issues. Identifying who is unable to come and trying to explore why that might be, I think is a really valuable thing to do. And it could be they say to you, I'm not coming because I haven't found it to be particularly helpful. You won't hear that very often because few people are, are so honest. But if you do get that feedback, it's obviously worth sitting down and saying, all right, now you're going to have to tell me more. 
Tony, I feel so seen because that was me in residency. And I definitely uh, felt like I didn't quite take ownership over my learning until, you know, I, I had a similar conversation where one of the chiefs asked, asked me, like, why aren't you coming to morning report? Like, next year, this is going to be you leading it. And I was right. like, yeah, that's a great question. I still have, like, two, you know, patients to see. And I couldn't, like, fix and flip that mindset around the ownership around my learning. And I think it really is about having those conversations and getting that feedback uh, to say like, okay, someone's actually interested in me and wants to know why I'm not coming and what I can do differently. I think those are some some great tips about how to keep the group engaged and how to make morning reports stay more interesting and exciting. And how do we, when we kind of get to the end of a great case that everyone has been engaged in and enthusiastic about, how does the facilitator synthesize that or kind of wrap up that the case at the very end? And Ryan, do you have any recommendations about kind of a best practice for sending a written summary or having a chief blog? Yeah, so I think to start at the end of a case, it's always helpful just to verbally walk back through the case um, and verbalize the teaching points that are being made. I think any time you can really identify and um, signify certain teaching points as such, I think that's really important. Um, it helps solidify some of that. I think when it comes to uh, after report and making sure that that information can be accessed, you really want to make sure the activation energy to do so is very, very low, right? So can you give them a physical takeaway that they can, you know, a table all about hemolysis or whatever it is that they can take to their team room, tape up, put in their bag, whatever it is. I think that's, I think that's uh, something that's, that's helpful and that we do, uh, that, that we've seen before. I think as far as online repositories, chief blogs, emails, I think, again, the key is making sure that those are really, really easy to access. So if there is an online repository or a blog, making sure that that information um, is disseminated fairly frequently, whether it's a, you know, whether you have a weekly email to the residents or what have you, um, or just doing an email on your own, emailing out to the entire group, the learning points from, from that particular week. I think it's really important to consolidate that knowledge somehow. Um, and those are some of the ways that we see. And again, making sure that that information is accessible is really is really the key. Awesome. Well, I think that was a great summary. Do you guys have any last tips kind of from the chief perspective about morning report before we move on to a case of an attending? I'll offer one additional piece of advice and that for chief residents that do morning report over the course of a, a full academic year, and that's typical. Some do it as a kind of like a, a mini block. But if you're doing it over the course of the year, if you're not changing things up, getting yourself un, um, uncomfortable at times, doing cases that are not your, I'm a cardiology fellow, I'm going to do cardiology cases. If you're, if you're not changing it up, you're going to get kind of bored. Um, and, and actually that boredom um, can show sometimes uh, as a, uh, an audience member. So, you know, look at it as, as, a, as an opportunity to, you know, even if it's February, March, April, it's times to try things that are new and different. If you haven't done a fresh case, because that's not the way you do it at your place, do a fresh case. If you, if you have never done a rheumatology case, do a rheumatology case. Otherwise, it's you're going to pigeonhole yourself and you're going to sort of be susceptible to boredom. Ari, you did a chief year. How did you keep yourself from getting bored? Well, we did fresh cases every day, so there was no room for kind of preparing things. Uh, you know, I was the person who was like, and now we will pair share while I actively search on my phone the answer to the question that I just asked, you know, so there was very much a uh, 
it was um, kind of spicy every day. But I think every the way you mentioned it uh, was really real about making it a little uncomfortable and saying, okay, well, I haven't actually done um, a, you know, quote unquote, cold call in a while. And maybe there's a way that I can do this where I can ask, you know, Andrew a question, but give him some time to think about what the question is and then ask it and wait for a response. So just kind of trying things out in different tactics. But we never really had kind of prepared cases. And so I was always, every day, my blood pressure would get like a little closer to 140. And every day I'd be like, <laughs> is today the day you start a med? But um, I, I hadn't yet. So, it, but it was really fun. And I really enjoyed kind of making sure that it wasn't, um, yeah, it was keeping me on my toes. But I guess we should move on to case two. Andrew, do you want to take us away and kind of read the case and get us started? Absolutely. Um, all right. So here's case two. Uh, Susan is a new attending at the same hospital uh, where she completed her residency. She was re- recently asked to be the faculty supervising resident for morning report. She remembers when she was an intern and a resident, the morning reports were slow to start, lasted too long, and were a little difficult to engage in. Susan wants to change the culture and address these challenges by improving reports and finding new ways to engage learners at all levels. How can we help Susan? And then I think we can kind of start this out. Um, Tony, what is the role of the supervising attending as compared to the presenting resident slash supervising chief? There are many roles, but probably the two biggest are to support the chief resident so that they can succeed and not flounder if they're having to look up things on their phone, uh, which we all do, by the way. And two, to obviously advance the learning for the house staff medical students in the room. And so, you know, one way they can do the former is to bite their tongue a lot. Um, you know, we said earlier that uh, as you're preparing a morning report, if you do a prepared, you know, prepare and then cut it in half. The advice I give to attendings when they are either doing rounds with teams or are, are going to be a facilitator in morning report is to make about one in 10 of the comments you would like to make. And if you can do that, you're going to be much more well-liked by the chief resident. And the reality is if you're, if you're that parsimonious, what you do say, you're going to make sure is just pure gold and not just, you know, hey, it's been five minutes. It's time for me to say something else. But the reality is y- you also can help to move things along, ask follow-up questions, transition, because you have to remember, you know, if you had Era who's who's presenting a morning report, who it's a fresh case, she doesn't know the case. She's the one who is hypertensive. I am not on the spot as the faculty member. And so for me, I can ask a follow-up question, I can make a point, I can inquire a little bit more, give the chief resident a little bit of breathing room. And I'll notice things that the chief resident can't notice because their catecholamines are just interfering with their ability to think because they're like, oh my God, two people are asleep. We're five minutes behind. I don't have a differential diagnosis for hemolytic anemia. their, Their mind is just racing with things. We can be the person who can try to level it out a little bit. So I mean, there's a lot more to it, but uh, I think the key thing, I got to take my own advice here, say one out of every 10 things that you want to say. If you could, if you do that and do nothing else, you're going to be primo. Ryan's about to say, by the way, that I never shut up in morning report. That, so when he <laughs> says that, can we please edit that out? 
Ryan, just finishing up your chief year, do you have like some some things that you've seen attendings do that worked really well? If different attendings come on different days, are there some that you're kind of most happy to work with and, and things that you hope other attendings take on as that role? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much to add outside of what outside of what Tony had mentioned. I think the important piece is similar to uh, similar to what the facilitator should be doing, the person giving morning report, the chief resident, right? Your role is to engage your learners and center that that report on the learners themselves, not necessarily show everyone everything that you know about a particular topic. So again, you know, when there is a faculty member present, or if you are the faculty member who's going through uh, who's going through the case or supervising the case. It's important to recognize that you are a, you are a faculty member, and everybody else there is an intern or uh, or a resident or a student. So, um, understanding that that different level of training and making sure that you're staying focused on what those uh, what those folks need to know most um, in order to best sort of leverage your expertise. I will say it's been six years since I've ran a report, but everything you just said, Tony, made me flash back, and Ryan made me flash back to experiences running report and wondering, you know, how how is it going to go with this faculty member who's watching me and I'm kind of trying to watch the learners in the room and you're keeping track of so many things that, you know, it's, it does take time and effort to really um, center the, the learning as you were talking, Ryan, just to kind of make things move along. And I wonder, because we've talked about timing a little bit um, with kind of, you know, 45 minutes, an hour versus 30 minutes. I wonder how maybe your institutions came up with that particular timing and, and how do you kind of move through it when you're, let's say, the, um, let's say you're the faculty member giving, observing or giving feedback to the chief resident or to the resident running the report? How do you kind of use that time to your advantage and say, you know, at 15 minutes, we need to be doing this. At 30 minutes, we need to be doing this. And maybe, um, maybe Tony, I'll start with you. Uh, when I was a chief resident, morning report was an hour. And actually, when I when I took my current position, the first thing I did was cut it to 45 minutes. And I think that has generally been a success. We could talk about reasons why, but I think 45 minutes is enough time to sort of really learn a lot. And then allow people to to get to rounds and advance patient care. But it's it's hard to manage those forty five minutes. There are simple things that I can say, like start on time. Ryan heard me say dozens of times this past year. If you have one learner in the room and it's eight o'clock, it's time to go. Because if you create a culture where we start on time, hopefully people will start showing up on time. And let's reward that one learner. Like I don't think people who show up at eight ten. And the case, you know, we're 10 minutes into the case. I don't think they're like, well, that's it. I can't possibly learn anything this morning. That just doesn't happen. It's okay if you show up a little bit late. You'll get there. So, you know, one way to actually manage your time is to take advantage of the time you've got, which is to start on time and then end early. If you've got 45 minutes, plan a 35 to 40 minute morning report, if it's a planned one. And if you go over by a few minutes, that's fine. But you always want to end with at least five minutes of, all right, what questions do we have? And then, all right, let's wrap up with a couple things that we've learned. If you try to do that on the hour, once you go 10 seconds over, man, people start getting itchy. And they they want out of that room. They And by the way, I do too. So it's oh, it, it's better to end 10 minutes early than one minute late, almost universally. Well, I feel like you also leave them wanting more. You're like, give me more yeah. pearls because we, we ended three <laughs> minutes ahead. And you're like, till next time, till next morning at 8 a.m. <laughs> you when do you guys the- do morning report? Do you, well, I'm, I'm curious. We, we, we still do it at 8 a.m., but what, what about for your places? 
7.30 or 7.45. Yeah. But it's still remote. So people are like yeah. getting dressed, commuting. Okay. But I will yeah. say when I was when I was chief, it was an hour. And now most of the ambulatory reports are 45 minutes. And I will say confidently that the first 15 minutes we would go through like a mix up question and it would be me and one medical student and one intern. And I'd be like, OK, between the two of you, who wants to take a stab at this question? <laughs> well, so I do think those 15 minutes, you know, shortening, I think, make a really big difference. Well, it's interesting because it was I did two things. It was from 730 to 830 initially. So I moved it to eight which was a boon for attendance. And then I shortened it um, because uh, rounds have to start at nine. And start, the difference between 7.30 and 8 o'clock it was night and day in terms of attendance. Both of you kind of mentioned the attending not sort of oversharing their knowledge and not kind of taking over things. But what about the flip side when I'm there and I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about PNH with the PHN, <laughs> proximally. Yeah, nocturnal. Um, so what do we do in those kind of situations? Like as the attending, how do you how do you kind of learn on the fly? I mean, Ira mentioned texting away on on your phone while you're doing pair share, but what are some other tips of kind of managing a case that you don't really know a whole lot about? This is really hard. And amongst the five of us, we have an expert who really should be answering this question. And so I'm gonna make my comments brief and then she can do it. My brief comment is stick with first principles. Almost every, if it, let's say it's a, a diagnostic dilemma, almost every case you could be like, all right, let's think a little bit about some cancers, some rheumatologic conditions, and some infectious diseases that might present in this manner and make use of the group. We already alluded to it earlier. If you're like really fumbling, say, okay, we just learned a lot about this patient. This is a tough case. Let's all talk in pairs for about three minutes and think about what you might do next to try to resolve this problem, and then we'll come back. And then the reality is you get to ask five people what the hell they would do, and then you can comment on it. So there there are opportunities to, to make use of the group brilliance, because the reality is if you've got 15 people in the room, they are collectively a lot more smart than you are as an individual presenter. So just like really make use of them. But Eri, you're the expert. What did, what did you do to resolve this problem? I mean, I will tell you one of those, one of the moments, I don't know about expert, but I definitely just got used to getting uncomfortable, which is something that you mentioned earlier, Tony. And I just got used to thinking, you know, probably it's going to be really unlikely that this is a case of something no one's ever seen in the world ever. And that, you know, somewhere in the world or the interwebs, there's probably something that I can, you know, lean on and not to mention the room. And I was really lucky when I was chiefing that we actually had multiple discussants that were kind of HIV specialists or kind of neurointensivists or people, you know, critical care experts who would come and would be part of our pair share. So exactly as you said, we would hear from those folks. And also um, not to, you know, plug the chief blog, but we did have a blog where we would post our learning points. And, you know, from 2012, I could look up something that somebody wrote in, in those three minutes where people are pair sharing and say, all right, here's one thing that I learned today. And, you know, one way of approaching this that, let's say, Leslie Shu taught us in 2013 on the chief blog is XYZ. So I would, I'd be pretty transparent about it, but I would recognize that there's, it's probably very unlikely that a, you know, once in a million zebra is this case and no one's ever interpreted, you know, an ABG before, like, that's not the case. So, but I would love to hear kind of what Ryan, you know, what Ryan's thinking and how maybe he would help Susan. Yeah, I think um, I have not been 
a faculty member at all in this position, but um, or in any position. But um, I think one thing that I've found as someone you know who's been to plenty of morning reports, um, if I'm in the audience, it's really helpful to hear the you know faculty member whoever's there acknowledge that they, like you had mentioned here, that they are having you know that this is something outside of their comfort zone and then actually saying explicitly what resources they're going to to solve that problem whether it's the morning report blog um whether it's you know saying a, a particular resource or a particular series you know oh the, in, this is a weird hematologic thing that i have not seen before i might go to the ash you know how i treat series and and look into this a little bit more right explicitly saying how that expert will learn more about this particular uh condition or diagnosis management whatever it is is really really helpful so i am glad that you mentioned that eric because i think that that's so helpful for learners to get a sense of what people who have been great learners for a long time what they're going to do to sort of solve this particular mystery that they're not familiar with um it's going to ask a, another question here um kind of going back to the the feedback portion it's well understood that feedback is um something that can be nuanced and often difficult to give in you know a conversation to to start it's going to ask you what are some practical ways attendings and other residents can give feedback to presenters during morning reports or you know after the case um and kind of how to go about you know starting those tough conver- conversations uh, Andrew, that question is really important. And it, I mean, gosh, I want to talk about this for a really long time, but I won't. But what I'll offer is a couple of things. First, we don't give enough feedback, just generally, right? I think we can all acknowledge that. But I think there's this sense that chief residents were selected because they are great teachers and you know, they don't need our feedback. That is true and untrue. They are great teachers, but they absolutely need our feedback. And then I'll sometimes see like, okay, we'll do feedback for the first couple of months, but now they've they've learned it, so we'll stop. I think that's also problematic. It needs to be immediate, like you need to sit down right after it and be like, all right, let's talk about how that went. And I think it needs to be about pedagogy and not about the particulars of the case. And what I mean by that is if let's say it's a prepared case, saying, you know, when you when you talked about this schema for hemolytic anemia, I'd, I'd probably put this over here. This case may be retired. We, we may never do this case ever again. That is not a good use of the feedback. Instead, it should be about things like, let's talk about how you address that question that the, the student answer asked. Or let's talk about how you addressed that answer that was incorrect. Or I noticed when we went into the pair share that people weren't really talking. Let's, let's brainstorm why that might be. Think about things that can be implemented tomorrow. And I think one way to create a, a culture of feedback is to really, and this is, I'm speaking now to program directors, to demand that chief residents all attend every morning report, even the ones that they're not presenting, and that they all then stick around afterwards. And as a group, let's talk about that. Let's figure out how we can make this the best morning report in the city, in the country, this needs to be the best. And the only way that it's going to be the best is if we have a culture of feedback, improvement, and absolute, like, highest standards. I, I don't know. I, I, I just think it's so important. Is that a like a short conversation, like a five, ten minute conversation? Or is that something that can go um, a little bit longer? And, and how do you recommend managing that when the resident has to go and, you know, start pre-rounding um, and starting to see patients and, and getting ready for the rest of the day. 
What a what a, a perfect follow-up question. Five minutes is often enough. Right. And in fact, if you're giving 10 to 15 minutes worth of feedback, you're probably bombarding them with too much. If you have a resident who is a presenter and who's giving feedback and you want to give feedback to, concentrating on maybe one thing that they can improve on and two things that they did well. If you do that in fewer than five minutes, I mean, that's just, that just doesn't happen. We, we just don't do this enough because we assume that we're all such good teachers that we don't need to hear anything other than that was a great job. Good job. That was a great morning report. Okay. But I want it, I want it to be even better. To follow up on that, Ryan, I might want to ask kind of like, what was the most meaningful piece of feedback you've gotten? And maybe it was from Tony even, um, but just kind of like how on the receiving side of that uh, during your chief year, kind of what were you looking for? And maybe what was the most meaningful piece that you got of feedback? Yeah, I, it's, uh, it is hard to choose. I would say the most, the most meaningful piece of feedback uh, that I received was probably making sure that when you're calling on people using their names, which sounds very, very simple and uh, very, it sounds easy. It's, uh, it's not when you have folks who are rotating through so frequently, but right, you want to make people feel like they're involved in the case, that they're involved in the discussion, that everyone's sort of wrapped up together in this in this particular report. Um, and to do that, you know, you really need to be familiar with folks. You need to use their names. Um, you, you're not, you know, pointing to folks saying, hey, you or whatever it is. It's it's very simple, but um, it is uh, it can be uh, deceptively, deceptively tricky and, and really, really important. Um, so that's uh, that's what I would go with. I mean, I'll tell you, th- there's as a learner, when someone calls on you and you didn't even know they knew you existed, man, that is powerful. Andrew, I have a question for you. And Andrew, Andrew is the medical student. like, wait a minute, what? Like, uh, this is my first day. How, how do you know I even exist? I mean, it is just such a powerful, powerful thing. Totally. I feel like it brings everyone into the conversation. Go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say, yeah, when that happens, the, the blood pressure definitely goes up because I've experienced something similar is when it's just me, the intern, and then the morning report and answering the questions. And it feels like I'm back in you world or, you know, <laughs> and stuff and I'm, I'm sweating. <laughs> but hopefully we can all create a culture where it doesn't feel as, you know, as much pressure, but we're all learning together and sharing that, you know, there's a lot that we don't know and that together we can come to the answer. Uh, do you guys have any main take-home points that you'd like to share with our listeners? And maybe Ryan, we'll start with you. Uh, absolutely, I think uh, I think really any case can be a can be a great can make for a great morning report if you if you create that positive learning environment, um, if you make practical learning objectives, and make sure that you know make sure that you acknowledge that everybody in the room has something has something to teach. And Tony, my main takeaway is morning report is amazing, and uh, it should never go away, and we should all go. It's awesome. Excellent. I love that. It's so true. I feel like I should have heard that as a as an intern resident and you know, now faculty as well. Um, Tony, Ryan, do y'all have anything that you want to plug? Any resources, any anything else, media? No, I got nothing. Um, other than uh, COVID vaccines, which are um, you know, even though my family is sick, they are doing well and I'm going to attribute it to the greatest of immune systems and a wonderful vaccine. Um, I think uh, for those who are interested in doing unscripted morning reports, um, if you want to set yourself up for success, there's an article from 2019 in Clinical Teacher from uh, from uh, Juan Lessing is the first author, and it's called How to Facilitate an Unscripted Morning Report Case Conference. It will set you up for success. They're very hard to do, but uh, I would recommend starting there. Thank you. This has been wonderful. We really appreciate your expertise and your 
your uh, help with this. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, that was just such a wonderful conversation with Ryan and Tony. Um, it made me just so appreciate how hard the chief residents work and and what an amazing job they do with facilitation. Um, I think two take-home points for me that I really want to kind of take home was, um, number one, really trying to focus to the, the learners in the room. And so if you have a group of residents not spending 15 minutes doing a history taking, because that's really not where their learning point is. Um, so I think that was really valuable. And then um, I also just love the the last part that we talked about is the feedback and just how important that is to really help our chiefs and facilitators grow. And even though they're doing a great job, we can always be doing better. Um, so just trying to think about what are those tools that we can all incorporate to continue to do a better job. Yeah, I'm with you, Molly. I feel like I learned so much and also had a lot of flashbacks to my own experience six <laughs> years ago. But one thing I um, really am going to take home and kind of practice the next time I'm at report is, um, as Tony would say, kind of biting my tongue and just thinking about like, what are those one in 10 uh, or maybe two in 10 pearls that I absolutely want to share as a faculty and as a facilitator at report where you know we can contribute to the group learning, but also make sure that the facilitator, usually the chief resident, is really kind of shining and, and engaging the, the group and um, making sure that the discussion is really lively. Andrew, did you have any major take-homes or anything you wanted to share? Um, yeah, I thought the, the part on using names um, was a really important part. I think that especially when it's online and it feels very disconnected, I think using names and trying to make it as personable as possible is something that's really important and something that I'm definitely going to take going forward as I kind of prepare to maybe try this um, in the very near future. Um, also, I've heard the plan for 30, 45 minutes and to never go over. That is one of the big recommendations that um, I've heard numerous times over because, yeah, I, and as I'm sure you both have experienced, um, staying over um, in, a, in a morning report or any kind of, you know, presentation is, is kind of like taboo. Short and sweet. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio and to our social media team, Andrew DeLott on Instagram, John Ong on Twitter, and Tima Karganoff on our website. And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ira Krasnovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Andrew Delott. And I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblain. Have a good night.